You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. No one's excited. I see how it is. All right. You know what? We can just go back to online services. It's okay. No, obviously not glad that we can be here tonight in person. Of course, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online as well. But as Elder Benji said, you know what? Try to come out when you can, if you can. Uh, Of course, right? That's what the church is. It's the gathering of the people. It's ecclesia. That's what that means, the gathering of the people. So with that said, uh, we're excited that we can finally reopen and gather together and worship together in person. Hopefully this doesn't change. It was a big surprise for us when things did change. They finally, you know, surprised us and saying, hey, guess what? You can reopen 15% capacity. We were, we were unprepared, right? Uh, but we're, we're definitely glad that we had this opportunity once again. Now, of course, we're in the middle of our series in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to be continuing that tonight. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're only doing one verse this evening. John chapter 3, verse 16. Please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's word. Hopefully everybody has their Bibles here. I hear pages flipping. That sounds amazing. This is better than just, you know, the worship team flipping on their phones the past couple of weekends, but... John chapter 3, verse 16. Hopefully everybody already has this memorized. It says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we magnify your name just as we sang moments ago. Majesty, Lord, we declare your holiness We declare your sovereignty. We declare you as king of the universe, of our world, of our lives. We thank you, O God, for this great opportunity that you have afforded us once again to come and gather with fellow brothers and sisters in person to worship you, to utter praises to you, to sit at your feet and learn from you. And I pray, O God, that we would utilize this time with much excellence, O Lord that there would be no distractions among us, that there would be no uh, hindrances in our hearts and our minds to hear from you personally and directly, oh God. We know that you are an intentional and a personal God. And so we expect to meet with you this evening, oh Lord. Whether we're here in person or at home, oh God, meet with us, we pray. We ask that you would use me as your instrument of peace once again, oh God. In Jesus, your mighty name, we pray these things. Amen. And amen. Tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, John 3.16. You may be seated. John 3.16. Ooh, this is different. I gotta get used to seeing people's faces again. Now I can see your reactions when I talk about a hard truth and your confusion. Um, of all the passages in scripture, there is no other verse more famous than this one. Agreed? Yes? Maybe? 
It's quoted all the time by preachers and evangelists. People hold up signs at sporting events in stadiums with the Bible references, right? Athletes write John 3.16 on their shoes and sell it, right? And then if there's any verse that the world would mock Christianity with, it's this one. Who's ever heard of Austin 3.16, all the wrestling fans? I'll pray for you, whoever would that. But again, this is, there's no doubt that this is, if any of all the Bible verses in Scripture, this is the most famous and most popular verse. Now, fun fact, this was actually the first verse that I memorized growing up as a kid, and I'm sure many of us here memorize it as a kid growing up as well. But with its popularity, this verse is oftentimes the most wrongly interpreted verse as well, or rather wrongly exegeted verse, or, or rather wrongly used verse, or out of context verse um, out there, especially when it comes to the doctrines of grace. For example, when we talk about God's sovereign election, oftentimes this verse will be brought up to rebuttal that doctrine. But John 3.16, right? Whosoever, whosoever, therefore anyone can be saved trying to refute election. Well, that's not what that verse, this verse says. Or sometimes this verse will be used to sell salvation, right? See, if you believe, you won't go to hell, you'll have everlasting life. This is your ticket, John 3, 16. That's true and all, but it misses the intent, the point of this verse. John 3, 16 is such a marvelous verse, but oftentimes it's taken out of context or taken to mean something it doesn't mean. And I'll be honest, you know, I've done that in the past, I'm sure. Those examples I just gave, I'm pretty sure at some point I've said those. But the problem of those interpretations is that they miss the depth of the truth found in this verse. If interpreted correctly, this verse contains a wellspring of grace and security and encouragement for the believer beyond how people normally interpret it. You know, I'm not trying to belittle this verse and how people use it. I think when we wrongly use this verse, that's belittling it. So my desire for us tonight is to dive into this verse with the hopes of excavating every nugget of truth found in this verse, every underlying doctrine that it contains, so that next time we quote this verse, or we tell someone what our favorite Bible verse is, John 3.16, that you would truly know why. Listen, this verse, John 3.16, you know, I've said it before, I believe it encapsulates the entirety, the heart of the gospel, in fact, even the whole message of scripture, and that's why it's important not to miss it or interpret it wrong, or else we get the whole message wrong. My hope tonight is that for us who know this verse, who've memorized it from childhood, that we would see it in a fresh light. That we would find new encouragement in it, new conviction in it, a greater appreciation for John 3.16. And for those who are listening to my voice, who have yet to believe as it says in the verse, that you would do so today. Today is a day of salvation and you would recognize the beauty of the gospel found in this verse. So let's jump into our text this evening. Everybody say jump. Yeah. Sounds better in person, let me tell you. 
So now, in order to understand this verse, we need to first address some of the wrong interpretations that we hear, or some of the wrong notions and teachings that we usually hear when it comes to this verse. Once that's addressed, then we'll go into what this verse truly means, or what the intention of this verse is from, from the Apostle John. So firstly, we need to address the biggest way in which this verse is taken out of context or out of meaning, and that is the extent of this verse. The extent of this verse. Now, what I mean by this is that when people quote this verse, they will often take it to mean that anyone and everyone can or will be saved by God. Because, see, God loves the world and so much so, much so that he sent his son and so that whoever and that whoever means that anyone and everyone who believes will be saved and have everlasting life. They push the extent as to, to, to encapsulate every person who's ever lived. And maybe you've heard it preached that way before, but sorry, not sorry, that's not what this verse means. People have taken this verse to deny the doctrine of, like I said, election and promote the doctrine of universalism. Now, in case you've never heard of those two doctrines or those two terms before, the doctrine of, of election in regards to salvation is the reality that before the foundations of the world, before creation, God in his sovereignty chose certain individuals to be saved, to, to experience grace, to experience forgiveness, to be redeemed, not by the merit of their works or their righteousness or their, even their future works, an unconditional election simply from God's divine will and purposes and by his grace, unmerited favor. And we see this truth all throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or look on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that's election, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Romans 8, 23, or Romans, sorry, 8, 28, another famous verse that's often taken out of context as well. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And usually people stop there, but check out verse 29. For those, for those whom he foreknew, meaning he knew beforehand in a personal and intimate loving way, he also predestined. That's God's sovereign choice, election to predestine beforehand for salvation, to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Even Jesus is very clear about this doctrine of election. John chapter 15, verse 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose who? You. That's election and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, there are many more references 
on this doctrine throughout Scripture, from the Old and New Testament. But again, a very rudimentary definition of this doctrine in regards to salvation is that God in His sovereign will, meaning His right, His authority as God, as King of the universe, as a holy God, chooses, elects, some of humanity to be saved, to experience forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the holy God. Again, life eternal, as our passage says. Now, with this doctrine of election also comes the doctrine of limited atonement, which says that God's design and purpose for salvation, for his work of salvation, is to intentionally send his son to specifically atone and pay for the sins of the elect that they will be saved and believe. To make it simpler, this doctrine of limited atonement if you want to put it in this way, simply seeks to answer this question. In God's design for salvation, did Christ die for all or did he die for the elect? Let's let that question sink in a moment before you start answering, right? Or giving me loud voices here. Did Christ die for all or did Christ die for the elect? Now, if you're unfamiliar with limited of this doctrine of limited atonement, you're probably thinking that, that Christ died for all. John 3.16 even says that, right? God loved the world and sent his son so that whosoever, that certainly sounds like Christ died for all, everyone. But then that poses the problem of, again, universalism. And again, this is how this verse is often presented. So, so now, universalism is simply the idea that Christ atoned for all of humanity so that all of humanity will be saved at some point, whether in this life or in the next. But now understand the problem there, because what's the point of believing or having faith in Jesus in this life if Christ's atonement is effective, efficacious to pay for everyone's sin already? What's the point of conversion, of repentance, of if God will save everyone regardless if they believe? Because again, Jesus paid for everyone's sin. Now for some reference here, you need to understand that this doctrine of limited atonement was established by Calvin and, and other reformers to refute the doctrine of universalism propagated by the Catholic Church, which said, and, and listen, I'm quoting this from Catholic.com, all right? which says this, universalism is the view that all people, or possibly all creatures, which may include demons and the devil himself, will be saved. That's catholic.com. Anyone triggered a little? When I read that, I got a little triggered, but it's okay. Should have referenced, you know, trigger warning here. Uh, a more current version of this idea of universalism comes from a man named Rob Bell. Maybe you've heard of him. In his book, Love Wins, he says that hell is empty and that you can reject Jesus and still be saved. Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> Do you see the dilemma here? People who sit in this camp of universalism believes that Christ's atonement was sufficient to save sinners even if they do not repent or acknowledge Christ as their Lord. Catholic doctrine will go as far as, as, far as to say that some, after some time in hell, that all sinners will eventually be redeemed by God after they've paid for their sin on their own time in hell. But again, this contradicts the doctrine of grace, of election, and belittles what the atonement actually accomplishes. 
Think of it this way. Sin, as we know, condemns us before a holy God. This is why it was necessary for Christ to come and die and atone for our sins. Because we could not do it on our own. But if everyone will end up in heaven anyway, even if they reject Jesus, what's the point? What's the point of Jesus dying? What is the need for the doctrine of election in Scripture? What is the need for God to choose in the first place if all will be saved anyway? What is the need for human responsibility of believing and having faith in Christ's death that he's already paid for our sins? If at the end of the day, the atonement of Christ for the sins of the world is effective for all humanity, from all of time, for all sin and all peoples, and even demons... What is the need for hell and judgment? Which, by the way, the Bible is very clear on. For all the people who speaks about hell, Jesus is the one who spoke about it the most. About a place where God punishes sinners forever. Right? Not for some intermittent time or until their sins have been paid off. Forever. Where the worms do not die and the fires do not cease, according to Christ's own words. The book of Revelation talks about the the lake of fire, which both sinners and demons and the devil will be thrown into for all of eternity. So we can't deny that. All of that to say, if, if the atonement is efficacious, effective for all, then it puts a contradiction in Scripture in regards to judgment and election. All this from... Again, this false doctrine of universalism, which, by the way, has no scriptural basis and is only founded on human sentiment of wanting and hoping that everybody will be saved. Hoping that, you know, God is kind enough that he'll save everybody, right? That he's loving enough that he'll do this. But there's no biblical truth or no biblical foundation in those claims. Well, Pastor Ian, we just read John 3.16. It says that it's only for those who believe. Exactly. Salvation is for those who believe. So it's already limited to those who believe. Salvation is only for those who believe. And that's what John 3.16 says, right? That whosoever, what? Believes will have everlasting life. The verse itself teaches an atonement that is limited to only those who believe. The elect who believe. Not in a universal atonement. So already we have a notion that not all will be saved. Only those who believe. But now this puts into question the efficacy of the atonement. Efficacy simply, I've been saying this word, efficacy simply meaning God's ability to save. Because if we say that the atonement is for all and simply dependent on man's belief or man's efforts to atone for sin, then we paint this picture of God being rendered impotent, powerless, unable to save unless man decides to believe unless man decides to save himself. It's like God did everything. You know, he put his son forward to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. He even sent preachers to go and evangelize uh, with the gospel. But then God's up in heaven, crossing his fingers, hoping that someone believes. That's what happens. That's what happens when we diminish this, this, this atoning work of Christ. And this is what Catholics actually believe as well. Again, from Catholic.com. Just because God wants something, it doesn't follow that it's going to happen. That's what they say. No, that's not the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible is one who determines to save his people, and he does. He is the God who starts a good work in us and is faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. He is the God who declares an end from the beginning. The God who sends forth his word and does not return void until it accomplishes its purpose. He is the God of the Bible who is powerful to save, mighty to save. He is not an impotent God who lacks the power to, to bring his people, his chosen people, to salvation. God is a God who saves, who wills it, who determines it, and accomplishes it. See, a better name for the doctrine of limited atonement is definite atonement, or, or rather definite redemption. That is to say that in God's design for salvation, he puts forward a plan to definitely save or redeem his elect. Christ's death and atonement for sin was intentional and purposeful. It was powerful enough to atone for the sins of the world, but intentionally effective to atone for the sins of the elect. This is why it is said that the atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient for some, namely the elect. So let's connect this to what we've been talking about in the previous passages in John here. God takes an active role in the work of salvation. We already talked about that. That's regeneration. He's the one who regenerates the heart, replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's the one who gives us the gift of faith, the one who pre preserves the believer until Christ's return. God determines and wills to save the elect, and he does so. So now, if you believe that, everything that we just mentioned... It means that the extent of the atonement, the scope of the atonement, must be narrowed down only to the elect. Which is to say, going back to that question, did Christ die for all, or did he die for the elect? The answer is, Christ died for the elect. And the Bible is very clear on this as well. John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, this is the elect, and gave himself up for who? Her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Pretty clear who Christ laid his life down for the church, his bride, God's elect people. And for what purpose? For washing and cleansing? That's atonement to bring into righteousness. So, this is what we're saying. And listen, and, and, and I hope you're, you're able to, to hear this truth. Christ did not die to make salvation possible, he died to make salvation certain for the elect. Christ did not die to make salvation possible. He died to make salvation certain for the elect. The Father did not send his Son to die on the cross for the possibility of some people to be saved. No, in God's design, in his perfect will, he sent his Son to die on the cross for the atonement of sin so that the elect will be saved. Definite atonement. But how about the world in our verse, right? You might be thinking or asking here, how does that play in? Well, again, the traditional way of understanding these truths is simply that the atoning work of Christ on the cross 
is sufficient for all. Meaning, its value, its sufficiency to cover the sins of all people is there. It was a perfect sacrifice, but its effectiveness only is for the elect. Those who would ultimately believe, those, God, those who God chose before the foundations of the world are the ones who benefit from this atonement, this sufficient atonement. And that's what we're trying to say here. Christ did not die to make salvation possible. He died to make salvation certain for the elect. Now, I've heard the objections to this already, and I could read your minds probably here. No, I can't. That's witchcraft. Uh, but I, I understand this probably revolves around the idea or the doctrine of election. And I think most of us would agree that salvation is limited to those who believe. That's what we read in the text, right? And that is a great and marvelous thing that God determines to save and that he is going to save, that he's mighty to save, that he will save. And I think that's great, right? No one's discouraged by that. Those are comforting thoughts. But when it comes to the doctrine of election, the idea that God chooses people to be saved, that, you know, it's getting a little hot here, you know? Because that means only some will be saved and it's God who chooses who will be saved and who doesn't get saved. That's a little uncomfortable. How can God choose to save some and not others? How is that fair? How is that just? How is God loving in that? Well, that brings us to the intent, the intent of this verse. What is God's intention with this verse of John 3:16? Well, take a look at it again. For God so loved the world. Stop right there. Like I said, we, we probably memorized this verse. We've heard this verse so many times. And, but did you ever ask to stop? Or did you ever stop to ask, rather, what reason does God have to love the world? What reason does God have to love the world? Did the world merit God's love? Was humanity so perfect and so good that God had so many reasons to love us? Right before this verse, Jesus brought up the story of the Israelites who rebelled in the wilderness. Right after this verse, in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 18, as it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of apps are, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So again, what reason does God have to love us? in the first place. Even us who are called, even us who are elect, what reason do we have? And if you want to break down John 3.16 all the more, let's go back to the top of that verse. For God. This is not some of the run-of-the-mill God. It's not a little G God. This is the sovereign creator of the universe, the holy, holy, holy God who hates Sin, who punishes the wicked, who created hell for judgment against the sinner. Again, for all have 
fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Again, I ask, what reason does this holy God have to love a sinful world? Let's go even further. For God so loved the world that he gave. What reason is there for God to give us anything? To afford us any favor? We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. And even more, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only son. Excuse me? This holy God gave his only begotten son to us? Why would this holy God love us that much? And of course we know what giving means. It's offering up as an atoning sacrifice to die on the cross on our behalf. Why would he give us his son to die on the cross to atone for our sin? What reason? See, this is what I'm getting at to answer the question of how is God fair if he only chooses some? If he only elects some, how is God just? The reality is he didn't have to. The reality is God did not have to save anyone, but he does so anyway. If you want God to be fair and just, then his justice, his justice dictates that we all ought to die for our sins, not the Son of God. Yet instead, he gives us Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, to die on the cross for our sins. So if you want fair, fair means that we get from God what we truly deserve, and that is death, that is punishment, that is the cross. The wrath of God, judgment on a sinful world, that's fair. That's just. Yet God, in his infinite mercy, in his grace, and in his love, he chose to enact salvation for those who did not deserve it. See, that's the point of this verse. That's the intent of John 3.16. It's meant to communicate how this holy God demonstrate his love to a sinful world undeserving of it. Think about what happened so far in this chapter. The context of this verse, right? We often read John 3.16 John 3, out of context. But what has happened so far? Nicodemus, this Pharisee who lived by the law, who, who lived a, a religious life, a works to be in right relationship with God, comes to Jesus wanting to know how to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in John 3, 3, that you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom unless you are. And of course, Jesus uses this metaphor to communicate how in this spiritual rebirth, in this being born again, just how you didn't contribute anything to your physical birth, you cannot contribute anything to your spiritual birth. Jesus goes on to give examples about regeneration, being born of water and spirit. All of it pointed God to all of it pointing to God's unilateral work of salvation. Jesus goes on to say that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, meaning we cannot produce anything of ourselves that is good, only flesh. And Jesus goes on to call out Nicodemus about his unbelief, as we talked about last week. Jesus, is, Jesus even goes as far as telling Nicodemus where his unbelief comes from, from his sin. 
He gives the illustration of the Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness. That's right before this verse. So imagine if you were Nicodemus and you were just told by Jesus that your entire worldview of works, of working for your salvation, of, of a right relationship with God was wrong and false and doesn't merit anything. And that there's nothing that you can do to earn a right relationship with God or salvation. But then, on top of that, he points out that the reason why that is the case is because you're sinful. The reason that you don't believe is because you have your rebellious heart. Because you're totally depraved. You're hardened heart. Now I imagine for someone who is coming to ask for how to get into the kingdom and looking for answers and looking for how he can get right with God, I can imagine that this is kind of discouraging, right? Jesus tells you you can't do anything because you're a sinner. It's like, what? What's the answer to this? I think the natural conclusion that Nicodemus would have had is that I can never be saved. I can't earn my way to right standing with God. I, I'm not good. I'm not righteous enough to be in right standing with a holy God. What hope do I have then for salvation? Now it's at this point that John 3.16 comes in. The heart of the gospel, the summary of scripture, that despite our sinfulness and our unworthiness before a holy God, God nonetheless loved us and gave his son to die the death that we should have died. Took our place to pay for the price that we should have paid. Also that we could have everlasting life. And, and lest you think that's you know, eternity and paradise and living the life, the next life. Again, remember people use this verse to sell heaven, right? But that's not the intent of this verse. How does Jesus define eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life as an intimate relationship with God, knowing him, a relationship in which you know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent in a personal and intimate way. That's eternal life. See, that's the point of this verse, John 3.16. It's meant to be the answer, our hope, as to how wretched sinners like ourselves can be saved. When, when we merit nothing of our own, when we have no righteousness of our own, when, when we have nothing good to offer to God. It's because despite our sin, God loved us anyway. And God gave his son for us so that we can have a loving relationship with him. Paul puts it in this way. This is Paul's version of John 3.16. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 10. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's atonement. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In short, in our wretchedness, God loved us and determined to save us. That's the theme. That's the message of John 3.16. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close.
not done with this verse. Next time we're in the Gospel of John, we're going to come back to this and see it in the full picture of the passage. So what now? What now? Well, the invitation rings out. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I love this verse. Again, the depths of it. The fact that God would love us sinners, undeserving of that love having done nothing to merit that love. He still sends his son to die for us. And then he makes it so easy to be in right relationship with him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes, that's the condition for salvation. Salvation is offered to all who believe. Faith, belief. Some people have said that faith or belief is a work. It, it, it really is not. Belief and faith is passive. It's simply relying on the finished work of God. It's the absence of it's what the Bible calls resting. Similar to how, how God gives us this example of rest in, in the seven days of the week, in the Sabbath. That is the picture of faith. That you stop working. That you just rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what faith means. It, it's it's coming to God with empty hands, nothing in your pockets. Simply accepting that you cannot save yourself, you can do nothing to earn salvation. It's all on God and His mercies to save. So the invitation rings out. If you have not yet put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so this evening. Recognize that you are a sinner undeserving of God's love. But truly deserving God's wrath. Recognize that you need Him to save. That's faith. And ask everyone to stand up as we enter into this time even if you're listening to me from home pray that you would truly wrestle with the spirit this evening have you truly put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ
we recognize that we have nothing good to offer you. Yet out of your great mercies and your love, you still sent your son to die on the cross on our behalf. Oh God Almighty, forgive us for the ways that we have turned from your truths. Forgive us for the ways where we have hardened our hearts to your spirit. God, you have afforded us so much by your grace, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us not take it for granted, oh God. Let us truly understand what your atoning work on the cross has merited us, has benefited us. That us who were condemned to die now live just as Christ lives. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would return to us the joy of our salvation truly know why it is that we are able to sing and lift hands in worship. That we would truly know what this joy of our salvation entails. The beauty of your gospel. The beauty of your sacrifice on the cross. So that we may live lives worthy of the gospel that saves us. God, we say thank you. We praise and love you pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.